um, uh, Pastor Matt taught on the first half of uh, 1 Samuel 17. 1 Samuel 17 is maybe the, the, one of the most beloved, famous stories in the whole Bible about David and Goliath, the great battle between David and Goliath. And it's such a long passage. I mean, there's a ton of verses. We're only looking at the second half today. Last week, his reading was very long because there's a long passage. And you might say, why is this passage so long? And, you know, in the ancient world, when you're writing this on a scroll or parchment or whatever they were writing the scriptures on, you wanted to be as concise as possible because the resources were limited. And so when you have a long story like this, the author is telling you, this is important. And uh, there's good reason that this story is so well known because it's a story that speaks deeply to the heart of what Christianity, what our faith is all about. And so I'm excited for us to study it together. And so you can follow along right there in your bulletin, 1 Samuel 17, starting in verse 38. This is the word of the Lord. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor. And he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said uh, to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you In the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with the sword and spear, For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sha'arim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. 
As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, as your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from striking down, uh, from the striking down of the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant, Jesse, the Bethlehemite. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this great story uh, preserved for us in your word. And uh, we pray for your Holy Spirit to be our teacher now that you would lead us to our Savior and, and champion, the Lord Jesus. That we would uh, receive um, his salvation with faith and we would follow him with obedience. And so may your word shape us, form us with power today. Open us, uh, our, our minds, give us ears to hear, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, one of the challenges uh, in becoming a Christian is that Christians, uh, there's all kinds of things that Christians say. You know, I didn't grow up in the church, and there's all kinds of Christian language that I didn't grow up hearing. And you don't know what certain things refer to. And one example of this is if you ever ask someone how they, become a, how they became a Christian, they'll often say something like, oh, you know, when I was in college, someone told me about Jesus and I got saved. And when I was a new Christian, what does that mean that you got saved? Is that just like, you know, a thing, Christian jargon that we uh, talk about? And uh, why do people talk that way? And uh, the reason people talk that way, it turns out, is because uh, the Bible uses that language. Romans 10 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Or uh, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. This is Acts 16. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Or Acts 4. There is no name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And apparently the Bible says that Christianity is about being saved. It's about being rescued. That's what Christianity is about. It's kind of like, you know, you're drowning in a river that's going by and someone jumps in and pulls you to shore and rests you out of it. That's what being a Christian is like. Or it's like you've got this pile of debt that's just crushing you and there's no way you can get out of it and someone comes and pays your debt and it just frees up your whole life and you say, oh, you've saved my life. That's what Christianity is all about, is about being saved. And uh, this passage that we're reading today is about how God is a God who saves and rescues people. And just to give you a little uh, recap of what's happened in this story that I just read to you so far, in the first half of uh, 1 Samuel 17, the Israelites and, uh, and the Philistine armies have come to this valley. They're on the two mountains of this army uh, of this valley facing one another and the because the Philistines have invaded the southern part of Israel called Judah and they've come into Israel land uh, Israelite lands and now they're facing one another and uh, Goliath who's a giant has challenged the Israelites to send out someone to fight him and David who's the little brother of one of the soldiers he's bringing food to his little brothers here's Goliath kind of challenging the Israelites and he says no one's going to go out and fight him I'll go out and fight him and so today uh, we're studying how amazingly the young David defeats Goliath by the Lord's power and help. And you see that David gives this speech to Goliath, and at the end of the speech there in verse 47, this is what he says. 
and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. And so this passage is about how salvation works. And, um, and it turns out that the story illustrates perfectly for us as well, what does it mean for us to be saved? So when someone uses that language, what does it mean? And so to, uh, this morning, I want to answer for us three questions about salvation. This is what they are. What do we need to be saved from? How does God save us? And what are the results of being saved? What do we need to be saved from? How does God save us? And what are the results of being saved? Now, I'll just say, this is like the most fundamentals of the heart of our faith right here is what it's all about. This is the gospel, and it's right here in 1 Samuel 17. So three questions for us this morning, and the first is this. What do we need to be saved from? What do we need to be saved from? And, you know, traditionally, Christians have said there are three things that we need to be saved from. Satan, death, and our own unbelief, like our own hearts are the problems. There's three things, and I want to show you how each of those things come through in this passage. Three things that we need to be saved from. So first, we need to be saved from Satan, from the, you know, the devil, the evil one. And this passage that I just read begins in verse 38, and it says, Then Saul clothed David with armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail, and David strapped his sword over his armor. And he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. Now, if you were here uh, last week, Pastor Matt pointed out that there's a connection between the Hebrew word for a bronze. You know, he had a bronze helmet on. And, uh, and uh, for a serpent, Goliath was clothed in like scaly bronze armor, and he looked like a serpent. And, and the bronze sounds like a serpent. And so Goliath is like a serpent devil figure in this story. And then Saul tries to clothe David in the same kind of armor. And David says, I'm not going to be a serpent. Get the armor off of me. I have a different way of fighting this battle. And actually, this connection between Goliath and Satan is, is a connection that uh, Jesus himself makes. You know, when Jesus starts his ministry, he came saying that he came to defeat Satan. And the way uh, Jesus describes it is this way. He's is in Mark. He says, but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. And commentators say that likely the strong man that, that Jesus is saying Satan is like he's, is a reference to Goliath. And it's as if Jesus is saying, I came here to defeat the greater Goliath, the greater strong man who is the devil, the evil one. Now, if you're here this morning and you're, uh, you're not a Christian, you might be thinking it's surprising that a room of people who live in Bellingham in 2022 of this size would believe that there's still a devil. You know, with the horns and the, the red tights and the goatee, you really believe that there's this, this evil enemy of God kind of prowling around to destroy people. And I'll tell you, well, the Bible doesn't say anything about horns and red tights. But I'll tell you as a pastor, I've listened to countless people's life stories and heard the real things that people have experienced in this world and the harm that has been done to them. And I think it makes absolute sense to me that there is a darkness at work in human civilization 
in human lives, in human families. And it is an intelligence that wants to destroy people. And if you think, you know, well, we're modern people, we're, you know, in this, we're, we live in a scientific age, we don't believe in kind of the superstition of devils, you just have to think about that for a moment. Like, what does science have anything to say to us about a spiritual power in the universe? Science studies, you know, the repeatable physical matter. What a scientific experiment could you put together that could prove or disprove whether there is a dark intelligence at work in the world that hates God and is working against humanity? And in fact, of course, the devil doesn't want us to believe in him. Then he can just go on wreaking havoc in people's lives undetected, and then we don't even try to stop him. The basic Christian belief is that this world is ruled by a dark intelligence who hates God, who wants to destroy human beings, and who threatens our peace just like Goliath. And you and I need to be rescued from his control and destruction in our lives. And some of you would say, I feel that. It's like I feel like I try to come into like thriving and health in my life, and there is something opposing me. The Bible says that is true. There is a spiritual force opposing you, and we cannot save ourselves from that force. And Ephesians puts our condition this way. It says, we once walked following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air. You know, it says this world is ruled by a prince of darkness. And then Jesus, right before he went to the cross, he said the same thing. He says, now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Jesus himself says there is a ruler of the world. And so what do we need to be saved from? The first answer is this evil one, Satan, the devil. Many names the Bible gives uh, to him, okay? So that's first what we need to say. The second answer, what do we need to be saved from, is we need to be saved from death. The second answer is we need to be saved from death. And of course, uh, in this passage, the thing threatening God's people is not just that they have an evil enemy, but it's death itself. And that's what Goliath says in in verse 41. It says, And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And then you skip down to verse 44, and it says, The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Now, you've maybe read passages like this in the Bible and wondered, why is the Bible so brutal and graphic all the time? I mean, like birds of the air eating people's flesh. That's not what I expect to read about when I come to a spiritual book about, you know, how to love people and how to love God. And the reason the Bible talks this way is because this is how the world really is. Death is brutal. The world we're living in is absolutely brutal. And another aspect of modern life is not only that we ignore that there is a real darkness at work in the world that is working against us, but we also ignore, because, you know, we live in kind of a medical age, the fact that we have an impending death that is approaching every single one of us. And your flesh may not be eaten by, you know, birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Your flesh is going to be eaten by worms and maggots, though. I mean, if you're buried in the ground... You're going to be, I don't know what's grosser. What what is grosser, getting eaten by birds or getting eaten by maggots? Either way, this is our future. That is what's coming for all of us. Not just the Israelites in this passage. That's, That's the future for all of us. And one of the most important questions we have to answer is, 
What am I going to do about the fact that my life is like a train that's moving full speed towards a destination, and that destination is my death? You can't slow down that train. You can't stop the train. You can't change the destination. And the Bible says anyone who ignores that fact is being foolish and not facing reality. And so Goliath's taunt when he says, I'm going to give your you know, flesh to the birds of the air and the, you know, the beasts of the field, is not just for the Israelites. That's a taunt to all of us. That's the world we're living in. And some of you would say, that's true. I'm scared of death. I think about death. And that fear tells us that I need to be saved from this. This is something I can't save myself from. I can't run away from. I can't ignore. But I need to be saved from. And so what do we need to be saved from? Two realities. First, the evil darkness that is opposing us. Second, uh, death we need to be saved from. But the third thing that we see in this passage is third, that we need to be saved from our own unbelief. We have a distrust in our heart towards God that is the source of all the dysfunction in our lives, and we can't get rid of it. And it's not just things outside of us that we need to be saved from, but there are things inside of us as well. It's our own hearts that we need to be saved from. And you see in verse 45, it says, Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. And as you read this story, you find that David's big issue with Goliath is not just that he's an enemy warrior, but that he comes and defies and with an unbelieving heart, and he's blaspheming the Lord, and he's, you know, he's, he's speaking poorly of the Lord's you know, reputation and power. He doesn't respect God. He doesn't fear God. He doesn't honor God. And so the sin underlying Goliath's evil is unbelief. And that's actually true for all of us. The deepest sin under all of our sins is a heart that doesn't trust God. It's a heart of cynicism. It's a hardening that says, God doesn't pay attention to me. God doesn't care about me. I'm not even sure that God is good. I'm not sure that he's powerful. I'm not sure that he can do anything, and I don't trust him. And the tragedy of sin in the world is that we're all born into the world with hearts that already don't trust God. We're already distrustful just by our nature. And then we're born into families that hurt us. We have relationships and experiences that hurt us. Other people's sin hurts us. And it just confirms to a heart, a heart that already doesn't trust God. And this all became confirmation. See, I knew it. God can't be trusted. I need to take control of my own life. And I need to protect myself. And so our heart just becomes even more distrustful and more cynical. And so what's wrong with us and with our world? What's wrong with our relationships? Why don't they work right? Why do our emotions not work right? Why do our decisions not work right? It's because we do not trust God, and so we take control of our own lives. And so one of the most important things that we need to uh, know about all three of these things, the devil, death, and our own heart of unbelief, is that all three of those massively affect our lives, And you cannot save yourself from any of them. I cannot save myself from any of those three things. And so that leads to our second question, okay? Not just what do we need to be saved from, but the second question is, how does God save us? How does God save us? And the big answer of this passage is that God saves his people through a champion. 
God saves his people through a champion. And let me uh, say a, a couple of things about that. The first thing to say is that it's God who saves. Uh, and in this story, David is called to fight the, the giant Goliath. And you'll notice that detail there in verse 40, how it says, then, he, then David took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistine. Now, if you've ever read this story, you, maybe you've wondered, what's the deal with the five smooth stones? What does it mean? What's the meaning? And there's been all kinds of meanings for the five. You know, I've heard that David, who wrote a lot of the Psalms, there's five books of the Psalms, and those are like your five stones for spiritual warfare. The Psalms are actually, Paul Fredette came up to me after the first service, and he said, Goliath had four brothers. And so is one stone for Goliath and then four for the brothers. So maybe that's it. I, I hadn't heard that one. Um, but uh, probably what's intended here, at least with stones, is that one of the, there's few things that in the Old Testament people were stoned for, and one of them was blasphemy. And so David says, I'm going to go kill this blaspheming giant who's threatening God's people, and I know how he needs to die. He needs to be stoned to death. So he's going to pick up his stones. But I think one interpretation that I, I, I really like best is that if you look back in the story when Israel came into the promised land. They crossed over the Jordan River. And right next to the Jordan River, they built an altar that was supposed to be a reminder to all the generations later, remember, the Lord saved you and he gave you this land and he made these promises to you. But then inside the Jordan River, at the bottom of the river, there were these stones that were also a remembrance, not for the people, because the people couldn't see the stones. Only God could see these stones. And it was to remind the Lord to say, I remember my promise to my people that I will protect them and I will care for them. And so when David reaches into the brook to take out five smooth stones, he's taking hold of God's promises that the Lord would care for and protect his people. And one of the great themes of the whole Bible is salvation belongs to the Lord. It is God alone who saves his people. Okay, so it's God alone who saves his people. But the second thing that we see is that he saves them through a champion. God saves them through a champion. And you'll notice the language of champion in this passage it says that David, you know, runs at Goliath, right? Goliath comes forward and David, it's like he doesn't even think. He just starts running at him. And he slings a stone and it's buried in his forehead. And like all of a sudden Goliath's dead. You, you know, it's like, how did that happen so fast? And then in verse 51, it says, then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of his sheath and killed him. And cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. Now, what does it mean, a champion? Well, in the first half of the story, if you were here last week, that, that Matt read, uh, Goliath describes what it means by a champion. This is verse 8. Goliath says, Am I not a Philistine and you are the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves. And let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then, we, then you shall be our servants and serve us. Give me a man that we might fight together. And what he's saying is basically there's these two armies that are about to just go into this brutal battle together. And he says, all right, instead of the two armies battling, both armies send one man, a champion, that are going to you know, fight in the valley in between these two armies. And uh, that will act as representatives of the army uh, and who would fight on behalf of this people. 
And so it's very tempting, you know, when we come to a, a story like this about David and Goliath and say, well, you know, what's the story of David and Goliath about? It's so inspiring to think David believed in the Lord. And so we think, I'm supposed to become like David. I'm supposed to trust God. I'm supposed to take on the giants. And of course, we should be inspired by David in this story. But really, uh, this story, uh, it's, this story uh, that's really not what this story is about. It's not that we are David, but it's that we're the soldiers on the hillside that were unable to defeat Goliath, and we're the ones who need a champion, and David is the representative of God's people. And actually, if you read through the Old Testament, this theme of the representative is really what the whole Bible is about. You know, if you read through the Old Testament, you find that all the stories are not about the people of God. The stories are always about the leader of the people of God. So there's Adam, and there's Noah, and there's Abraham, and there's, you know, uh, uh, Joseph, and uh, there's Moses, and Joshua, and then there's the judges, and Samuel, and, and then David, and Solomon, and then all the kings of Israel, and the kings of Judah. The whole story is about the leader of God's people, and when the leader is being faithful, then the people thrive, and when the leader is being sinful, then the people suffer. And actually, that whole story of the Bible begins with a promise that God made to Adam and Eve that there is going to be one specific champion, the son of a woman who would come. And what's the son of the woman going to do? He's going to crush the head of a serpent. And here's Goliath dressed like a serpent. And David comes, and what does David insist to do? You know, he throws the rock in his head and he falls down, and what's the next thing he does? He takes the sword out and cuts off his head. He says, the God's champion is crushing the work of the serpent. And yet this whole line of leaders throughout the Old Testament, all these representatives of God's people, we find over and over again, they're, they're all dead. They're all gone. They're all imperfect. Until the final champion appears, who is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And when a person believes in Jesus, what they are doing is they're saying, I choose you as my champion. I choose you as my representative. I choose you as my leader. And I trust you as God's great warrior. And I give to you my ultimate loyalty. And that's what it means to be a Christian. Just as, uh, as the Israelites were unable to defeat Goliath, you and I are unable to defeat Satan, death, and unbelief. And so to be saved is to receive Christ as your champion who's defeated all three of those things and to trust him and give your loyalty to him as your king and defender. This is what it means to be a Christian and this is what it means to be saved. And when you do that, when you say, okay, I've given my loyalty to Christ, I follow him, I trust him, I depend on him, what, how does that change your life? And that's a final point that we see in this passage is we've looked at, you know, what do we need to be saved from? How does God save us through a champion? The third thing is what is the result of being saved? When we are saved, what, how, does that, how does that change our lives? And I want two things happen. First, we share in Jesus' mission. As soon as David cuts off Goliath's head, what happens? Look at verse 52. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Shareim as far as Gath and Ekron. So it's after, only after David has won the decisive victory that all the other Israelites are empowered and inspired and strengthened to go join into the battle. 
That's exactly the same with us. Jesus has won the decisive victory by his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. And we're now following him after he's already defeated the enemy. And this community that we're a part of is a people who he has joined together in his mission of fighting against the darkness and destroy, uh, that is destroying people's lives. Except Jesus' followers, we come together and we're not killing Philistines. What are we doing? We worship like we are here. We eat together. We pray. We love our neighbors. We offer, we befriend people who, who are, are alone. Um, we study the scriptures and have our minds uh, transformed. We speak the truth. We serve those who are in need. This is the mission that we become a part of. And so the result of being saved is when you're finally free from darkness, from the unbelief of your own heart, and from the fear of death, you are set free to become a part of what God is doing in the world. You're given new strength and purpose and direction. Okay? So what is the result? Is first we join the mission. But then there's a second thing that we see in this passage is that we share in all that belongs to Jesus. Jesus shares, the champion shares everything with us. And, and you see what happens there in verse 53. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines and they plundered their camp. So David wins this victory and all the spoils, all the riches, all the wealth that came from that victory, he shares with all his people. That's what he, exactly what he does with us. So these things that we couldn't defeat, he comes and he says, all that's mine is yours. Your king says to you, all that's mine is yours. And what is Jesus? Well, it's first that, you know, you, Jesus is God's beloved son. You become God's adopted beloved son. You have an inheritance with him. You have eternal life. Jesus enters into heaven, and you have a place in heaven. And God is forming a family where God is our father, and we have brothers and sisters. We have an inheritance. We have a Holy Spirit. Jesus' character is poured into our minds and our hearts so that we can become like him. We can have his joy, the character of the family. You know, some of you may go through your life and say, you know, I wish I had been born into a better family. I see how much my family has affected me. You know, maybe pains or my, my parents' failings, and I see how it's followed me my whole life. If you are in Jesus Christ, you have been born into a better family. That happened. And it's the best family there is in the universe. Well, the creator himself is our father and Jesus is our brother. And we have the full inheritance of everything that belongs to him. And so this is what it means to be saved. When darkness has haunted your life and death is on the horizon and your own heart hardly believes, God has put forward his champion to fight the fight you couldn't fight and to share with you all that is his because he loves you. And he calls you to offer your ultimate loyalty to him today. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, we thank you for this great story. Um, the story of not just the Israelites those many centuries ago, but the story that is a picture for us of your great salvation, and to think of the many people around the world and throughout history who have come to know the salvation that is offered to us in Jesus. And Lord, we pray that we would uh, regularly just continue to rely on the grace of our champion. 
May we know him. May we draw near to him and may he draw near to us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. What a good God we serve. Thank you for that sermon, Nate.